This week on the It's a Monkey podcast. The majority of the cryptocurrencies when they were launched were open source. So what it meant is you could look at all the previous cryptocurrencies that had come out, all the ideas that had come out, and they were open source. So, of course, if you can then say, well, hang on a second, if I put this one together with this one and, and merge this and bring in some other tech and et cetera, et cetera, you can actually create something new far, far quicker. I mean, I'm old enough and ugly enough to have been through the whole dot-com era. And during that time, when you created technology, it was this technology's mine because my next valuation was going to be based or my next funding round was going to be based on the technology that I actually owned. But everything in the cryptocurrency space was open source. So ideas were piling on top of ideas and this access to, in inverted commas, democratic capital was available to anybody. Good evening, hello, good morning, wherever you are in the world. My name is Kevin Garber. I am the CEO of Manage Flitter and Manage Social as well, which, by the way, we're in very private alpha. If you uh, want early access, we've given a few people early access to Manage Social. If you want to uh, schedule some tweets through an awesome UI and uh, get some insight into your Twitter account and have a play, go to managesocial.com and apply for alpha. It is very exclusive release only at the moment to uh, to a few people once we as we evolve the product it is tuesday 18th of december where i am in the world it's probably a lot later where you are by the time we get the podcast out to you and it is episode 128 of the it's a monkey podcast where we talk about everything related to technology startups entrepreneurship um, if you haven't listened to it yet listen to episode 127 with Dr. Jody Foster, we spoke uh, about the human layer of startups, and we we spoke about uh, you know team issues and, uh, and and leadership and all those exciting bits and pieces, which actually not funnily enough not spoken about enough in the startup world. It's it's all about raising money and uh, you know finding product market fits and scaling your product, and but actually the human interactions um, are a very very important part. And funnily enough, in Silicon Valley. Um, the second biggest, the second most common w- reason for startups failing is actually co-founder fallout. Uh, first reason is unable to find product market fits, and second most common reason is uh, co-founder fallout, which shows you that the human side is very important. So that was in the previous episode, episode one two seven with Dr. Jody Foster. Today we've got a great interview coming up later on in the show with Tim Lee. Now Tim Lee, we've had on the podcast before. Um, he's the executive producer at the, the blockchain slash Bitcoin podcast, Down the Rabbit Hole, the blockchain and beyond podcast, also author of the book, Down the Rabbit Hole. Tim Lee is a blockchain, Bitcoin, crypto expert. And I thought we'd drag him back into the studio and talk about what's going on. There's been a lot of change and a lot of evolution in the crypto world and in the blockchain world. And I thought I'd drag him in and just get up to speed. And uh, last Friday in the studio in Sydney, we had an extensive chat. Um, about everything related to tokenization, Bitcoin, blockchain. I have to be honest, I only understood myself about half of it, but it's good to sort of immerse yourself and and get up to speed and just at, at least hear some of these words and some of these concepts. It is a very technical industry and it's a lot to understand, but it's uh, I think it's a very important industry that's going to be very important for us in the in the tech world to understand. But before we play the interview, firstly, um, as always, I have my 
co-host with me, Kate Frappel, who's the design lead at Managed Fit and Managed Social. She's in a, a small town called Kimberley in Canada, I believe. Kate, is that right? Yes, that's correct. About two to three hours drive from Calgary and quite close to the American border as well. So one thing I read about Kimberley, which I don't know if you know, it's actually got a strong connection with South Africa. Did you oh, know I that? didn't know that. No, if, so, if anything, I would have picked maybe German or something. They've got kind of a, you know, like some of the restaurants and stuff here have got kind of a German feel to them in their titles and stuff. So Kimberley is a very famous mining town in South Africa. There's something, there's a place called the Kimberley Big Hole, which is a massive open cast diamond mine. Some of the biggest diamonds in the world were discovered at Kimberley in South Africa. Somehow there's a relationship to the reason why they named that small town in Canada after that place in South Africa. It's, I saw that on Wikipedia. So there's a Wikipedia entry for your little town, but that's just a, a random. And, I, and when you said Kimberley, I was like, oh, yeah, I, I know Kimberley. It's pretty famous in South Africa. And um, so there you go. So uh, There I used think, to be a mining uh, town here too, so that might be the connection. Yeah, probably some some of the same uh, entrepreneurs of the time. You know that 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 was the startup world in those yeah. days, Kate. It was uh, it was mining. You know, yeah. But uh, happy to have Kate. This is probably going to be our last. This will be our last podcast for 2018. Thank you for listening and sticking around. We're going to keep at it in the new year. Find some. Actually, you know who I've. Uh, Organized for an interview, Kate, is the, the founder of this, or, or the co-founder of CRISPR, the, that oh, new cool. tool that we use. We use a fantastic little tool called CRISPR that uh, filters out noise. And it's just such a wonderful example of AI that um, I tweeted to him if he wants to be in the podcast and he said, sure. So in the new year, we'll or maybe we'll kick off the new year with a, a chat with him. But anyway, we're going to get straight into the news as always. Uh, we try to bring some articles to you to help make sense of this very, very fast-moving industry. And boy, is it fast-moving. Wow, this article, Kate, Bumblebees bearing high-tech backpacks acts as a living data collection platform. Wow, I mean, I don't know. I don't know whether to think this is amazing, feel sorry for nature and the animals and the insects, how we just co-opt them into our world. But anyway, tell us more about this story. Yeah, well, I was a bit on the fence as well. I haven't quite decided how I feel about it, but it's still an interesting read. So basically, there's been a lot of research into using tiny drones uh, to fly, mostly in farming over fields to monitor you know, things like temperature, humidity, whether things are rotting or in distress. And instead of the, well, I guess the major problem they've had with these tiny drones is that they can't keep them in the air for a long time because uh, of battery life and things like that. So what they've done instead is they've invented like a uh, a tiny wafer that's got electronics and a small battery in it and they've attached it to bumblebees. And then uh, what happens is the bees fly around and basically do the work of the drone by just doing what they do naturally. And so then when they come back to the hive, uh, that's where the data is collected and the battery is charged wirelessly. Um, so they can sort of set up a charging station next to the hive where the bees are going to come back every day anyway. Wow. I mean, it's super interesting. It's, um, but major, I mean, in my opinion, major ethical issues around 
I don't know what better word to use, consent, really. Um, I mean, I suppose we use animals in all sorts of ways. I mean, we use horses, we use cows, we use, I mean, you know, we, we do use animals a lot in ways that uh, they necessarily would prefer not to be used. But mm. it's quite a, quite a, um, yeah, quite, I, I, I guess all the ethics aside, quite an interesting and innovative way of solving solving a problem, right? Yeah. And I think it's like important to remember this is still a prototype, so like it's not widely spread at this stage. It's going to be presented, I think, at a conference next year. But they are aware of that, and I think the what do you call it, the innovator he has like recognised that that he is taking advantage of the bees, but has done his best to sort of be conscious of their ability and uh, actually work with their work with their bodies, I guess. Um, So he's minimized the weight of the backpack to 102 milligrams. Um, And so a full-grown bee can usually, or usually weighs two to six times that. And on a regular day, it can carry three quarters of its body weight in pollen and nectar. So the backpack is not very heavy for them. So Mm -hmm. they're quite used to carrying a lot more weight. So it's almost like they may not even notice it. But even so, I don't know that they should be used for that purpose. Um, and this kind of technology in the wrong hands, you know, like it doesn't stop at just bees. You know, it can be any kind of small insect. You know, you could put a camera on it. Um, Listening device, right? Yeah, yeah, you know, so like, you know, in a way, if it helps the helps farmers in a way, or it could even help the bees themselves, you know, helps their monitor their population and their habits and how they stay healthy. But the type of technology in the wrong hands could actually be quite... Uh, dangerous. I mean, it's almost like this: the world is just layered with microphones and sensors, and it's it's really there's going to be very very little respite. I mean, one of, one of the things I love about going deep into the Australian bush, which by the way, in Australia we just call the country bush, doesn't necessarily mean there's actual bush there. Which I discovered where one of one of our team members. Um, I think Shana is from Russia when I was talking about the Australian bush about, I don't know, one of the areas is, but there's no bush there. Why are you calling it the bush? I'm like, we, we call anything out of the city generally the bush. But there are parts of Australia where you really do feel like there's, uh, it's nice and isolated and it's, it makes a wonderful, a wonderful break. But yeah, there's sensors and, and, and microphones and, and cameras and, you know, everywhere. I mean, what, what's interesting about bees is they're actually remarkably intelligent. I read an article yesterday, funnily enough, about they actually discovered that bees can learn um, and teach each other. They've actually managed to, to train bees to pull a string to get some food. And they've actually got this on video, and it's the first invertebrates that they've seen. And not only do they learn how to pull a string to get some food, they actually go back to the hive and they actually teach the other bees. Uh-huh. Yeah, and it's actually the first invertebrates they've seen that actually exhibit this behavior because they've seen it obviously in primates and you know other animals, but um, insects, invertebrates, they've never seen this before. So there's still so much about our wonderful world that we don't know, and we just um, you know, project all this. Insects are just dumb insects, but um, there's a lot, lot more going on than meets the eye. So, uh, yeah, let's see. Let's see what happens with um, drones and backpacks on on bees. Wow, what a what a strange new world. But um, getting back to the other creatures of this world, humans. Let's look at the second story, um, which, yeah, 
McDonald debuts at number 23 on worst passwords of 2018 lists. So there's a company, um, Splash Data, that publishes obviously the most the most common bad passwords. And I'll read out the list to you. Now, number one is one two three four five six. Number two is password. And then three, four, five, six, and seven on the list are all numbers. What I found interesting, Kate, number eight on the tw- top 25 worst passwords of 2018, sunshine. <laughs> That's an interesting one. Yeah. Uh, A lot of them are, uh, yeah, sunshine was an interesting one, but some of them are just like people's names and stuff. It's just interesting. The There must be a a large population of people called uh, Charlie, for example, at number 21. <laughs> uh, 21 Charlie, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> or pets. Number 10, number 10 <laughs> I love you. Uh, 13, welcome. Number 18, monkey. Number 20 is interesting. Oh, that, that's obviously all the special characters on the top line, right? So it's exclamation mark, at, hashtag, dollar, percent. Yeah, okay. So you could and put it on 20... caps lock and just run your finger along the first, I don't know, six or so characters, one to six, in caps lock. And twenty-three is Donald. Wow. Okay. Uh, now, since twenty-one is Charlie, do you think twenty-three Donald is related to Donald Trump, or it's just a coincidence? I don't know. I mean. They're tell. making an article about it, which would make me think that Donald hasn't appeared on other years right. uh, that high, at least. So people probably are naming it after Donald Trump. But Charlie, like, not sure. Could be a lot of things. Could be people just, it's a trendy name or it could be a really trendy pet's name. And um, 16 is football. That's also interesting, right? Yeah. Football. Yeah. There's, a, there's another article I read. It had the top 100 and... Soccer and hockey were also two of the big sporting ones. Right. Now you can imagine the probably brute force hackers, which means, you know, unintelligent hacking, just, just guessing logins and passwords. Probably that one top 100 list probably scarily gets them in, right? Yeah, for sure. Just using people's emails and just, just going through, through 100. And, and they do that automatically. It's not like they type in the passwords. They've got software programs that just try 100 different uh, passwords that's why tip for you always have two-factor auth on on systems if they're there and always create a password that's easy for you to remember but difficult to guess combining words you know combine say take the first name of your kid do it backwards and the address that you grew up in combine them and that way it's a lot harder and also password um what do you call them password um what's things like one password generators but also I mean, they storage what one pass and last pass. Oh yeah, um, they they have generators in them, but they're kind of more of a uh, oh, there is a word for it, like a bank, password bank. You just right. save them all vaults, in one place, like and the it vaults. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, use those. A lot of people don't even know they exist. One pass, last pass. Password um, manager. That's what. Password it's manager. That's yeah. it. Use a password <laughs> manager. And in fact, if you're a small company, you can use password manager to coordinate the passwords between the teams. So that can be really useful as well. So it's really, we use, um, you know, I think most companies use, use password managers a lot. So, so yeah, so don't use one, two, three, four, five, six or password or yeah, I love you. Welcome. 
welcome, 66666, Donald, password one, QWERTY123, yeah. Mm. Um, Another interesting one is people, when I was looking at the, the longer list, people are using patterns in their keyboard mostly. So mm. I know that's sort of QWERTY and the and the first numbers as well, but um, they were doing like 1QAZ, which is just like a diagonal line, or 2WSX. Yep. Um. So they're just they're just lines on a keyboard, so you can just go straight in. You know what's interesting though, Kate. I think especially the last couple of years, what's been more of a bigger problem than than people's own accounts getting compromised. Well, not more, but as big. It's just these services getting hacked themselves, right? Mm. I mean, pe- people have become generally savvy. I mean, I mean, every now and then you see a friend on Facebook that says, "I've been hacked." You know, I remember my sister was hacked years ago and she got so annoyed and she just said to the hackers out there you know you're very terrible people and everything i said to you know it's not even probably a human it's all just bots you're screaming at no one you know <laughs> like it's, yeah it's all just automated things penetrating and malware and all of that sort of you know, side of things you know which has become less of an issue on macs and probably apple phones as well but i don't know i've never really had an issue on my phone thankfully i use an android phone but yeah, I do use I do lock it down quite quite tightly. But be careful what you download, and especially if you got kids. I think I think kids download all sorts of weird stuff, don't they? Yeah, yeah. I often like <laughs> cringe when I think about what I used to download. <laughs> <laughs> download like oh, LimeWire. That was it. I used to get all oh, your, yeah. these yeah. random things off LimeWire. It was a bit of a, a bit of a punt sometimes. You went to download a song or something and you'd end up with this track of like i'm trying to remember now it's just like be repeated yes like one like little a section repeated... of the song right yeah that or um, or like it wouldn't even be the song it'd be like a, someone's press release or something like it's yeah, very yeah, strange yeah. well i think what happens as well with those services is the record companies would tr- try to sabotage those tracks at one stage so the record companies would release tracks that had just noise in but were labeled as, you know, Superband X's new track. And they were trying to they were trying to sort of, you know, throw a spoke in the wheel of trying to keep, like cause problems on those services. You know, thank heavens we got Spotify. And, and I always maintained, even at the time, that people want to pay for it. People want to do it legitimately, but there just wasn't an option. Yeah. And it was just so convenient. So, you know, younger people listening to this word that use Spotify won't even know about all those struggles that of those days of Kazaa and LimeWire and, and even before then just downloading MP3s and CDs and yeah, it's all moved it's all moved nice and fast. But, yeah, uh, I used to share all sorts of stuff with each other via CDs and um, floppy and disks and yeah. And share them between your computers. (laughs) I remember downloading my first MP3. I remember vividly. It was about 1996, maybe seven or maybe five. And it was U2's album, Pop. And there were a lot of rumors at the time that they're going to release stuff on the internet. And they were actually taking GIFs of their recording process they were you know definitely ahead of the curve and they they would they would have a whiteboard that they had a, they would take a, a gif every day and post on this url while they were recording the album and then somehow an mp3 of one of the tracks leaked 
Um, now, I don't know if it was them who leaked it or, or, or someone in their entourage leaked it. And I downloaded this MP3 and I heard this song before the album was released. And I remember it took ages to download, Kate. It probably took, I'm guessing, six to seven hours wow. to download this MP3. Um, you know, with these old modems. But I got there in the end and I heard the song and um, wow, the rest is history and it was fantastic hearing hearing this MP3. So it's in one sense, it's long ago in our industry, but in another sense, it's actually not that long ago. So where are we going to be in another 20 years time? Wow, that's, uh, we're going to sit in 20 years, you and I, and uh, maybe in a nice virtual reality where we can hang out with each other, um, we can probably choose our location. We can go, should we record this podcast in Hawaii today and just sit in a virtual Hawaii, hear the sounds, see the smells. Bandwidth will be like real. It will be so dense. It will be like reality that it will just, you know, be so thick to recreate that reality. There'll be robot assistants. Um, we'll probably be half robot, just like those poor little bees. We'll have all sorts of appendages that, and, uh, we would have survived Donald Trump's presidency as well. So by then. <laughs> anyway, we're not going to go down that rabbit hole. That's the news for today. We, we're going to take a short break. Remember, you can email us at uh, podcast at itsamonkey.com and uh, tweet us. And you can follow Kate at Kate Propel on Twitter and me on Twitter at uh, KE underscore GA. We love hearing from you. And we're going to take a short break. And then we're going to play the interview that I did with Tim Lee who is uh, the author of Down the Rabbit Hole and the exec producer of the podcast Down the Rabbit Hole, the Blockchain and Beyond podcast. And uh, if you're into crypto, if you're into um, Bitcoin, blockchain, you'll find it interesting. Don't worry if you don't understand everything. I didn't. I think a lot of people won't. Just let some of the concepts wash over you. Blockchain and crypto are going to be a very, very important part of our world over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, in my humble opinion. So I think it's uh, uh, the lovely word. It behooves us. It's, it's, it's in our own interests to uh, get to know a little bit about these industries. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be back with you after, after that with the interview with Tim Lee. Hi, my name is Joe Pinto. I'm the Business Operations Manager here at Manage Flitter. Did you know that Twitter can be a powerful social selling platform? But the first step to effective social selling on Twitter is to grow your Twitter account with high-quality niche followers. For example, let's say you are an online bicycle retailer. Manage Flitter could help you grow your Twitter account by helping you find and follow people who have the word cyclist in their bio. The more targeted your search is, the higher likelihood these Twitter accounts will follow you back. We have millions of users, literally that have used Manage Flitter's search, sort, and filtering tools to grow their account with the right followers. This has provided them with a solid base to kickstart their social selling. Feel free to drop by manageflitter.com to trial our product or email us at contact at manageflitter.com to schedule an obligation-free walkthrough. You're back with It's a Monkey podcast. My name is Kevin Garber. I am the CEO of Manage Flitter and Manage Social. Thanks for listening to us on this podcast. Now, 
probably, what are we, end of 2018. In 2017, we touched on the themes quite a bit of blockchain and Bitcoin. And we actually haven't touched on those themes for quite a while. Just to recap, Bitcoin, in case you, you're not aware, is this fantastic digital currency that um, is is is, is sort of created off the base of blockchain technology, which was created uh, by a, a, a white paper from an anonymous person. No one really knows who he is, Satoshi Nakamoto, right? And um, Bitcoin, um, as a as a currency, as a, a as a cryptocurrency, as an asset, sort of went nuts in 2017. It peaked. The price peaked in December 2017. And then everything changed and the bubble burst. And we haven't spoken much about Bitcoin or blockchain in 2018. But I thought, I thought it's time that we re revisit it because it's a fascinating technology. Crypto is a, a fascinating industry. And I thought I'd drag into the studio um, someone who's been on the podcast a few times before. And we're lucky enough that he's in Sydney. So I can actually physically drag him into the studio, which is a real treat for us. It makes a change from... Uh, um, the Skype interview. So I'm happy to say that Tim Lee, who's the executive producer at his own podcast called Down the Rabbit Hole, all about the blockchain and, and beyond. Tim, thank you so much for joining us in the studio. No, thanks, Kevin. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's been a while. It's been a while. Now, I guess, where, where do we start? Let's, why, why don't you summarize the last couple of years for us? Um. <laughs> I think the word manic comes, comes to mind straight away. I mean, Oh, it's been a it's been a wild, wild ride. I mean, in 2017, cryptocurrencies were, you know, they were just flavor of the month, and you know, everybody was was in the crypto space who was uh, involved was making good money. You know, I remember going to a conference in May 2017 called Consensus. At this conference, everybody was high fiving this. They were everybody was talking about Lambos, which is the great. Uh, um, sort of cliche for the crypto space. And people's phones were going off left, right and centre. And at that time, the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday was a conference, the consensus conference. The previous Thursday in New York was a thing called the Ethereal Summit. And on the Thursday was the Token Summit, all right, mm -hmm. all condensed to bring everybody in. And halfway through that conference, everybody was just going, it was going crazy. I sold half my portfolio in the middle of that conference because I wow. was just, I just thought, wow, this is just insane. And it actually fell at the end of the conference by about 40%. And I'm thinking, this is just crazy. I mean, yeah, the other half of the money lost a bit of money on, but, you know, I, I just sort of felt it was overheated. And then the, the ICO boom just went crazy. I mean, it's, it's insane to think since June of 2017, $20 billion has been raised by initial coin offerings. So of course that was um, that was the next um, wave, right? The ICO. So it was uh, the Bitcoin. Now, now people are people are really fascinated by the numbers. So in December 2017, Bitcoin peaked at about twenty thousand US dollars. Correct, right? nineteen eight seven zero. I think it was. It's as good. It's just touching. Yeah, on a couple of exchanges, it was twenty thousand. Right, and it is now currently about what about three thousand two hundred. Right, so you work out. Um, it's about an 85 percent fall, roughly, is where we're at. So. A lot of people must have really lost a lot of money, right? Well, I think it's one of those things that, like any bubble, um, it's those that get in late are the ones that lose money. Mm. And the smart money got out a long time ago in that sort of, yeah, you know, between September and December, the smart money got out. 
because it's the it's the age old thing of any markets. You know, you buy low, you sell high. That's how you know traditional uh, fund managers work. You know, so they'll buy when there's blood on the streets, and they'll just wait for it to go up. Like you know, with it being at three thousand two hundred right now, a lot of institutional players are starting. Um, yeah, from what we're hearing, via what is known as the OTC, the over-the-counter markets, there are big, big, big orders coming in. And those OTC markets don't reflect in the markets you see publicly because it's between individual companies that they make transactions and people try and buy large amounts of Bitcoin. And so what actually happens when you're at the low point of a cycle, people are, you know, the, the smart money are buying or is buying, shall I say. Does it mean it's going to rise in price? No, I'm not going to, this is absolutely not, not financial advice, but certainly you know, just talking to people in the industry at that wholesale end, there's a lot of money that's going in to buy Bitcoin and Ethereum primarily. Now, you know, it's, it's crazy because the, the, the market collapsed by 85% and a lot of that was driven by regulation because basically initial coin offerings – were crowdfunding on steroids. And just just to help your listeners a bit, the way it would work is that somebody would create a platform, a software platform online that would be powered by a cryptocurrency token. So for example, Ethereum is what is known as a smart contract token so that where you can program money to do things. That's probably the easiest way of saying it. And every time you run a contract, you pay a little bit of Ethereum called gas. All right. So the idea with initial coin offerings, platforms would be created in theory. People would say, this is what we want to do. Here's a white paper, literally a 25-page white paper to highlight what we are planning to do. And people would buy into the dream. All right. And, and of course, there was um, very little... Very little transparency or insights or even um, accountability um, into into that project, right? It's, it's it wasn't like the ASX or the the Nasdaq where there's Absolutely. there's a whole bunch of hurdles and and you can only really list on those company uh, on those exchanges if you're a certain pedigree of company that's achieved some certain um, some certain Absolutely. goals already. And there was no formalized regulation relating to it, so it was very much that all the parties working in that space were working to best practice within the industry type of guidelines, okay? That was the way that most professional ICOs were being run. There were a lot of scams out there. I mean, there was one called Jesus Coin where you, they were trying to decentralize Jesus. What about CryptoKitties? Oh, well, well, come on to CryptoKitties. That's a, that, that wasn't an ICO, but that, but the, but that was the, just a coin, right? Well, yeah. Uh, yeah. CryptoKitties in itself was, it was basically where you had digital cats, that were unique. Okay, now bear with me because this is, it's slightly crazy, but interesting at the same time. So you'd have unique cats that would have their own DNA built into them. Mm -hmm. And you would then breed these cats. Okay. And to give it read, I mean, um, mining. Bitcoin, i.e. creating cats, right? But, but it, it's, it's literally a digital image of a cat, mm -hmm, right. okay? And then you would actually mix the DNA to create a new generation of cats. Right. Now, sometimes different elements of DNA would come in there and it eventually got to the situation where the Generation Zero CryptoKitties, who were the first generation, were selling for $100,000 US within two months of CryptoKitties being launched. 
which is insane, but at the same time, it actually proves the technology because those that are involved in the technology understood that they had a completely unique cat. Now, you're trying to stop yourself laughing here, Kevin, I can I'm see. Just, <laughs> I, I'm just, I, I actually, Tim, I'm just thinking, how on earth did we evolve to this point of evolution? Oh, it's it's, it's, it's one of those things where you've, if you've got a lot of geeks who made a lot of money, right, and they've got a lot of time on their hands, they love collectibles, they love rarities, that type of thing. But it, but it, it was actually a really important thing because over almost 20% of all the Ethereum transactions were going on when CryptoKitties was going mad. And the whole of the Ethereum blockchain just came to almost to a grinding halt. So it, it exposed the weakness of the blockchain technology in terms of scalability as something that's always been you know, a, an issue. But this really highlighted it. But at the same time, it shows the power of the ability to tokenize something. So, for example, if you go to a, a casino, you're given, a, you're given a, a, a casino chip, and that represents the cash that you've just paid the cashier. So that's mm -hmm. a token. In the same way, you actually get a software token, right, which actually represents the actual digital image. And it, and it enables you to identify that categorically you have this unique image belongs to you. Now, that unique image, that unique token could represent anything. And of course, in a, in a decentralized manner, which is the very important part of the equation, right? Well, for in terms of establishing the the truth within CryptoKitties, it was based on a, an open source on a public blockchain, which would then define that, yes, Kevin owns a cat with three spots on, whatever it might be, and that that belongs to you. So it's it's the actual, it shows the power of the technology underneath it, but it shows the weakness of the technology that acts as an infrastructural layer. And this is going to be very important for the next trend, which we'll talk about as we as we finish off this particular thing um, segment, but you know, relating to what is known as security tokens, which we'll come on to a little bit later. But the the crazy thing is that the CryptoKitties was super successful in the short time that it was around. I mean, it's still around. There are about four hundred users or something right now, but it showed a lot of a lot of the power, and it was all part of this euphoria that existed. There was so much FOMO, the fear of missing out, mm. of people just buying into Ethereum, buying into Bitcoin. I would, no, I, I would get at least one call a day from someone vastly removed from the tech industry and quietly asking me, how do I buy this Bitcoin thing? That's, and, and that's the time you know you have to get out. But you know what's interesting? I mean, someone once said that every technology starts out as a toy. Right. right, and it's and it's true, right? If you look at everything from the personal computer to social media, you know, to the internet, even in itself, it was a it was an uh, you know academic sort of uh, uh, exercise. So, so the fact to me, it's a good sign when people are playing with technologies. Drones. You look at drones at the moment. It's you know, okay, you've got your military drones, but then you've really just got consumer drones, and they're still a toy, but they haven't really hit industry yet. I mean, but soon. I mean, they've already in Australia's experimenting with rescue drones, yep. which is fantastic. So, to me, I actually see it as validation when something's when people are playing with something, right? Because you're exposing its strengths, its weaknesses, its use cases that are going to emerge. And I think that's the key thing that's important to understand because there are about three thousand different cryptocurrencies out there at the moment on the market. All right, and 
I mean, I, I, I do talks all over Southeast Asia and some other areas internationally. And I always ask any time I do a talk, how many people own Bitcoin? A lot of hands go up. So I say, keep your hands up if you own cryptocurrency, besides Bitcoin. A lot mm -hmm. of hands stay up. Mm -hmm. And then I ask the question, how many of you are actually using the token or the cryptocurrency that you have bought for the purpose for which it was intended? Mm. And about 95% of the hands go down. But, and it's such a good, I mean, if, if, if someone's listening and they, you know, they want to be entrepreneur, et cetera, it's, a, it's such a good lesson that what you land up starting thinking that you'll do in your business is definitely not what you'll land up doing. You know, it's, it's just your, your business evolves, the use case changes, people start using your products in ways that you never predicted. I mean, the, the, the creators of, I mean, look at Tim Berners-Lee, the creator of the World Wide Web. You, you know, it's not like he sat there, you know, and, uh, thinking that, wow, the internet's going to be used for, I don't know, ordering, you know, cars or things, yep. things like that. So, it's the strength of capitalism and it's the strength of the sort of agility of these techno technological frameworks that, they, that, they, that there is an agility to sort of iterate. And in fact, the iteration cycles have gotten really tighter. Well, even, it's, right? and, and this is the thing that happened with cryptocurrencies in general because the majority of the cryptocurrencies when they were launched were open source. So what it meant is you could look at all the previous cryptocurrencies that had come out, all the ideas that had come out, and they were open source. So, of course, if you can then say, well, hang on a second, if I put this one together with this one and, and merge this and bring in some other tech, and et cetera, et cetera, you can actually create something new far, far quicker. I mean, I'm old enough and ugly enough to have been through the whole dot-com era. And during that time, when you created technology, it was this technology's mine because mm. my next valuation was going to be based or my next funding round was going to be based on the technology that I actually owned. But everything in the cryptocurrency space was open source. So ideas were piling on top of ideas and this access to, in inverted commas, democratic capital was available to anybody. And it's also fueled by social media, right? In the dot-com era, social yes. media didn't exist. So social media just, you know, things get shared immediately to millions of people who share it on to other people, which just reminds me as well, I wanted to ask you a little bit about crypto Twitter, right? It's just there's all these personalities in the crypto world. Yeah. And they seem to have this like almost fervent religious sort of adherence to this. They've made Bitcoin almost so much bigger than than just a cryptocurrency and they you know they tend to be a certain flavor of human being there's even this weird association with eating dietary habits eating meats it's, it's become a trend only eating meats and and being a bitcoin you, you know bull and it's like what's going on with that whole subculture that's emerged uh, it's 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 almost out of control to be honest i mean i mean there's you know you've actually got great partisanship mm -hmm. that exists between so many of the cryptocurrencies. You get what is known as the Bitcoin maximalists who mm -hmm. are just Bitcoin is the pure, it's, it's the pure one. This is the one you must follow. Tim they, Draper, the Winklefoss twins. Well, it's it's wider than that. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've got, you know, there are some some deep, deep you know, experts who, who have got brilliant, brilliant minds, mm -hmm. but who are just so socially inept, it's unbelievable. But You've, you've also got the Ethereum guys. Now, mm -hmm. the Ethereum, Ethereum have done really clever stuff. They've engaged with the developer community worldwide. Mm -hmm. And so they've got a massive developer base that's really helping them. 
And so Ethereum guys are just totally pro-Ethereum. And they and it's almost that there's this, it's not a hatred, but it's it's that partisanship that's like sort of, it's like Microsoft and Apple in the early days, sort of kind of, is, right? It is. And then you've got you've got the what is what they have termed uh, as there's a a new platform called EOS, which you may uh -huh. or may not yeah, have heard, heard of. It, of course, yeah. They raised four billion dollars via their ICO, mm -hmm. their initial coin offering. So, is this is this consumer money, um, um, sort of, uh, you know, industry, um, institutional? It's mainly historically, it was mainly a lot of retail money. But there was I there's mean, some institutional is, money involved as well. I mean, but but they had the ICO over twelve months, not just over a condensed period of about four to six weeks. Unlike most other ICOs, but four billion dollars from consumers is like that. I mean, that that must be a, a world record of. of I oh, mean, that's, it's it's the largest ICO by far by a country mile. I mean, Telegram had a raise of about I think it was about one point two billion that was raised, but it, it's insane money. But they have now they've. It's also been run by people that have got a good sense of financial management. So they sold a lot of their Ethereum mm -hmm. at, the peak of the, at the peak of the price so that they made sure that they actually had consistent levels of cash to actually promote the business. So now that we're in a, in a real bear market, a lot of the existing traditional players are actually starting to lay staff off. Consensus, which is the commercial arm mm -hmm. of Ethereum, just announced that they're laying off 13% of their staff. Steemit, which is a, a social media platform for within cryptocurrencies, laying off 70% of their staff. I think it's Gigawatt uh, has just filed for bankruptcy in the States. I mean, there's all sorts. There's a real crypto winter that's going on. But EOS have got this massive war chest that they can now promote what they're doing. They don't have the developer engagement yet, but that's going to come. I mean, they they called themselves the Ethereum killer when they first when they first um, came onto the scene, and it's um, you know so from a, a cryptocurrency point of view and from a technological point of view, there's lots of areas that you know it does have a lot of positive scalability attributes, which means that it could scale quite dramatically um, to you know, to exceed Ethereum, but yeah, is it technically better than any other? Not a great deal better, mm. but it's like VHS and and um, mm. Betamax. Mm. You know, dating back years ago with video plays that be plenty of people that won't know what that is. I, but know, <laughs> I know, but it's a. I mean, yeah, Betamax was the was the pre runner to yeah, as a videotape, but it was a far far better quality technology. But VHS actually engaged commercially, and I think you know we might see. EOS because they've got so much money coming to the fore and a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of plays going forward, but a lot a lot in business. I mean, in the business schools, you know, one of the things they teach first, one of the principles is that distribution really counts, right? Absolutely, right. And that's where Microsoft have often won marketing and distribution. No, it's not always good product. I'll tell you a, a funny story that will will make you feel even older than you already feel, Tim. <laughs> I was talking. I was talking to a young friend. A few weeks ago, and we were listening to Spotify and talking about Spotify, and um, and I was like, I said to her, "So you've never you've never paid for music, have you?" So she stopped for a second and said, "No, I haven't." She's like, "Oh, that's right. You like like you would have to back in the day like buy buy music from iTunes." 
you know and then that's that that was his that was history to her let alone and i said mm, yeah you know cd uh, albums yeah yeah, 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 yeah yeah but that's that's where it's gone you know even uh, that even that seems really dated you know she was fascinated that wow you had to download and pay on itunes so yeah things things move um things move really fast what was interesting i looked at the graph of the nasdaq from i don't know 95 to 2002 or something and you look at the graph of of the price of bitcoin um, you know over the last few years and it almost looks exactly the same shape it's so fascinating but then if you extend the graph of the nasdaq up to now it's obviously gone back up past the yeah. dot com peak you know so bubbles bubble i mean i mean it's not equities and crypto are totally different beasts and i mm. don't think they should be the metaphor should be extended too far but it is interesting looking at these bubbles but it's but the the thing that's really interesting is you know it was prices were grossly over they were grossly overinflated and the actual technology the promises of technology just just weren't being delivered and you also had the at the commercial end corporates were just saying well hang on a second where's the return on investment for for blockchain based plays and it's one of those things i think steve jobs that once said technology should, should either be beautiful or invisible mm. and basically blockchain is becoming this enabling layer that's mm. sort of hidden beneath the surface and so a lot of uh, 2018 has been about how corporates are distancing, distancing themselves from cryptocurrency because cryptocurrency needs blockchain but blockchain doesn't need cryptocurrencies and and here's what i think about a lot like I'm fascinated by capitalism and particularly the failures of, of capitalism and what Ray Dalio have you have you read his book Ray Dalio No I haven't So Ray Dalio do you know who he the is market, he's, the big market guy over he, in the states Yeah so. he's he's one of the most successful hedge fund yeah. guys in history and he talks about that one of the problems with the world and capitalism is that the the returns have not been evenly distributed and that causes you know gaps between rich and poor which leads to civil unrest which yeah. political problems and all of that and where I think it's interesting as as the blockchain as the distributed system of trust to addressing some of these failures of capitalism, right? Well, it's and, and linking that. Now I don't know how I'm not that smart to make the link, but I'm hoping that that there, there is a very strong link because the blockchain is all about communities. You've got these. You've got a decentralized structure where the community controls what's going on and it's almost it's almost a natural extension of e-commerce you know the sort of the airbnbs the the ubers this type of thing where the community actually comes together and this is the really interesting thing that the next wave that's that's coming through in the in the crypto and the blockchain space is going to happen probably about quarter to next year i reckon mm -hmm. and that's the security token space where you have cryptocurrencies meet regulation mm -hmm. All right. Now, the power of, of initial coin offerings, ICOs, was that it gave access to global democratic capital. Mm -hmm. So basically, but very unregulated, though. It was highly unregulated, but it was primarily came from the retail space, not from mm -hmm. the institutional space. First of all, unlike the dot com era. Mm -hmm. So everybody, and even most listings, by the way, I mean most uh, most equity listings are still. The people that really benefit are either high net worths or institutions, right? Right. Now, the key thing about in, uh, initial coin offerings is that cryptocurrencies have one really powerful feature, and that's the ability to transfer international value 
almost instantaneously. For example, I've got money in the UK. I'm originally from the UK. Right now, it is quicker for me to fly to Heathrow, drive down to Brighton on the south coast, pick up my money, drive back to Heathrow and fly back to Sydney than going via the banking system. I mean, there was someone tweeted out a month ago that someone transferred, I don't know, $100 million on Bitcoin in a couple of seconds and a lot, lot cheaper than the banks. I mean, it would have cost an oh, absolute fortune. But, but, but this is where the power is coming from because, mm. I mean, I was involved in, in an ICO back in August, September last year, and we had f- monies coming in from 55 countries that cleared in three minutes. Mm, it's amazing. Right? No bank fees. No exchange rate now, fees. And, and Tim, this is where I think people need to differentiate between the promise of Bitcoin like, is not to be a replacement for Visa or MasterCard or cash, right? The promise is in these more specific use cases like transferring large amounts of money or receiving money, a, a large amounts of money from different countries or as store of values that the countries can't touch, yeah. As well, it's not. It's not. Some people ask me, "Oh, it's not. You know, it's going to replace Visa, Mastercard. It's not. That's not really the promise of Bitcoin. I don't right? think Bitcoin will, but there are other cryptocurrencies that might. But the interesting thing is that the the banks and the the arterial system of the banks linked into uh, an organization called SWIFT that arranges mm-hmm. interbank transfers. They announced just last week that they are. Yeah, they are trialing a blockchain play from their point of view. And by 2020, they'll have instantaneous transactions within banks you know, across their network is, is the way that they're projecting. And so I think the ultimate irony is going to be that the technology behind Bitcoin, which was first launched in, in January 2009, which was designed to take out the financial institutions, will actually finish in making up the finance institution is stronger. Mm. And it's the because you know once you get commerce that meets great ideas, you know, and you can they can solve a problem that exists right now, it takes them on to the next level. And it's, that's what we're seeing happening. It's sort of like the internet, if the, the the traditional media companies that have, or even uh, let's use Netflix as an yeah. example. Netflix was a, a video rental company or DVD rental company, right? And they embraced a new technology and they've just thrown fuel on their fire. And um well, let's okay. So let let's you know, Bitcoin had this great growth in price. Then there was the ICO wave, and now talk to us a bit more about that that next wave of the tokenization. Right. Well, the the next wave because you know everything. The reason one of the key reasons why the prices fell was the regulators suddenly woke up and said, "This is out of control," and it's one of those things. If a regulator doesn't understand what they're regulating, they have to find out. First, you know, what to regulate, then they have to work out how to regulate, okay? And it was just going out of control. Everything was open source. So essentially, they had the, the strategy of saying no, then negotiate, right? So, you know, for example, China banned ICOs overnight on September the 4th last year, mm-hmm. overnight. And then others have followed suit. And, you know, in February this year, Jay Clayton, who runs the, who's head of the SEC in the States, announced that where he said, I have not seen an ICO that is not a security. Mm. Okay. And you've got the, the SEC have actually issued fines now. They've, they've started enforcement action. So all this regulation. They they still haven't approved, um, they still haven't approved a, a crypto ETF, have they? No, they haven't. Not yet. Not yet. 
I mean, that that's all sort of bubbling under the surface. Um, that it may well happen. It may well happen before Christmas. We, we don't know yet. I mean, there's sort of rumours flying around and that sort of thing. But the the key thing is that the next wave of cryptocurrency is where regulation formally meets cryptocurrencies. So what you've actually got is the power, like CryptoKitties, to identify ownership of something. Okay. Then you've got the near instantaneous transaction of money coming in globally. All right. So all of a sudden, you have what is known as fractionalized ownership. And this is the key mm-hmm. to security tokens. And some of the smart guys on Twitter and the crypto Twitter have been talking a lot about this. Yes. Mm. So it's the idea that, for example, let's take, we'll take a random example. Let's take the Mona Lisa. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, the Mona Lisa is estimated to be worth $810 million. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, the number of people that could afford to buy that globally might be, I don't know, it might be 25 people, say. Mm-hmm. Right. But imagine you could actually fractionalize that ownership, that ownership. So you say, okay, 1%. What will 1% be? It'd be about 8 million bucks. Okay. Maybe that's not what we could afford. 0.1 of a percent. Mm-hmm. Okay. 8,000. If you get down to 0.0001% of the Mona Lisa, that's $810, okay? Now, if you could associate, for example, the revenue streams that the Mona Lisa brings in to that ownership, Mm -hmm. right, it actually gives you an investment thesis linked into owning that piece of ownership. Now, the question why it can't be done at the moment is because to administer that would be an absolute nightmare. It would be an absolute nightmare. I mean, theoretically, it's possible, but it's... It's, I mean, it's, you know, there's, there's a case um, using this idea of fractionalized ownership. And, and given your South African background, you might find this interesting. Uh-huh. In Rwanda, for uh-huh. example, they are looking at fractional ownership for cows. Uh-huh. Now, in Africa, as, 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 as you'll know, it's a source of wealth. When it's you, a source when, of wealth. When you marry a woman, you, you pay the family, you know, in South Africa, we call it labola, you, you, you give them cows. Right. Yeah. And, and interesting, I didn't realize this until I was talking to a buddy of mine, that the word capital originally came from capita, meaning head. And it was a head of cattle historically. Oh, that's well, where go, that's where yeah. it came from. Yeah. And so what what they're doing in Rwanda, for example, there's this particular project that's out at the moment where they've actually they're looking to the local community to fund the cows. And the people that put the money behind the cows would get a portion of the revenues linking into the milk production and then ultimately linking into whatever the carcass value was when it went to an abattoir, for example. And so the idea is the banks wouldn't get involved in those sorts of transactions. But from a local perspective, the community will actually help fund the community. So say say this Mona Lisa project, say I bought fractional ownership 0.001 at... I own a little piece of the Mona Lisa, call it Mona Lisa coin, right? Yeah. What's the the benefit to me? I mean, there's obviously a secondary market for it. Well, the the idea is that within any form of security token that there is a trading opportunity, Uh that you'll have globalized exchanges that deal in security tokens that will enable you to to trade those 24-7. Right. Right? So in principle... You know, for the Mona Lisa, for example, you could have the Mona Lisa coin and then that would establish itself as a market 
globally where if somebody wanted to you know to buy more of the Mona Lisa because they thought maybe Mona Lisa was going to rise in value for whatever reason you know then they could actually buy those on a regulated security token exchange but it's not like an equity where there's a revenue stream well there could be a revenue right. stream for example i mean you know we're actually sort of looking deeply into the art space uh-huh. um, and it is the idea that if you can link a piece of art to it being exhibited. Often, a lot of galleries have um, pieces of art in their vaults that are just doing nothing. And that what they'll often do is they'll lease those out for exhibitions that go traveling around the world, and they make money from those. Mm-hmm. So if you imagine an art gallery could actually free up, say, 75% ownership of a piece of art, and you could actually link that into the you know to the revenue streams that that particular piece of art is producing the investor gets a you know gets a nice value proposition from the museum's point of view that actually frees up cash they can go out and actually buy other pieces of art mm. and if they and I use the example of where if you want to buy one Damien Hirst painting, for example, mm-hmm. and maybe the, the gallery has $5 million to spend and they say, here's a Damien Hirst painting, that's great. Mm-hmm. If you fractionalize the ownership and offer 75% of the value of, of say, Damien Hirst paintings, you can actually extend that, that buying capacity to $20 million, which means from, an ex- from a, a gallery's point of view, they can actually put on a better quality show. Because right? they can have four Damien Hursts rather than one, for example, all right? where they offer, they, they offer out ownership to, the, you know, to, to four of those to external parties. They then show four Damien Hurst paintings. It gets more people through the door, which is what they're good at in terms of managing footfall and managing exhibitions and that type of stuff, which enhances their value proposition. So that's just one example of, of how fractionalized ownership could work. And it's the idea that if you think of venture capital funds that might invest in startups, for example, all right, with traditional traditional venture capital, they expect to get a return on their investment probably three, five, seven, even 12 years after they've actually invested, where there's a, a point of liquidity where either it's take, you know, the, the startup they've invested in is taken over or if there's an IPO, for example, the typical exit route. What you can do if you tokenize the actual VC, the venture capital fund, and you make that available on global exchanges 24-7, it actually gives an investor a point of liquidity when they need it or when they want it. I guess it's a big pro- it's a big challenge in that industry and even in the startup industry, liquidity events, right? Absolutely. This gives real-time liquidity. And so what But of what, course with liquidity it also means people can lose money a lot easier as well. People can lose money a lot easier as well. I mean I mean it it, it all depends on how the you know the fund is performing if the fund's performing well. Who knows? You can make some good money on the way up. And and again, coming back to that failure of capitalism, you know, these fantastic gains that the tech industry has had over the last few years. I think there was an article recently just showing how little that has trickled down in America. It has not trickled down beyond that 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 sort of elitist layer. It just does not. It's essentially a lot of the VC funds. You know, they are funded by high net worth individuals and, uh, you know, corporations and what have you. So it has been at that very top end of the market. This democratizes capital. In some ways, security tokens could be viewed as the uber of global regulated capital. Look, that's a, that's a powerful, powerful place to uh, a point to make. But here, here's the question, right? There was a the CEO of Google uh, fronted the U.S. government's um, Senate inquiry, I think, this week, and 
the, the one chap, the one, one of the senators struggled to understand the difference between Apple, you know, an iPhone and an Android phone. I mean, I'm, to be honest, I'm struggling to understand half of what you're talking about. I think I get the gist of it. And I've worked in technology all of my life. Do we have people in the Australian and the American government that actually understand all of this? Well, this is the thing. I mean, they should be consulting people like you, right? Well, the, 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 the I, as part of um, what, what I do in terms of talks and emceeing events, I emceed a, the Chinese Tea Festival. They actually mm -hmm. had a blockchain stream, and we invited, or they invited, three um, heavyweight players from the blockchain space in China. Mm -hmm. Okay, now China has is is its own beast in its own way. All right, they are not allowing. ICOs, initial coin offerings, or even security token offerings. They are focusing on the blockchain space. But what they are doing, and I interviewed these guys for the podcast, which will come out in a couple of weeks' time, where they actually are putting funds into industrial parks focusing on blockchain, IoT, and artificial intelligence. And literally, they were, yeah, they were saying, oh, yeah, we've got one that's $4 billion, one's $6 billion, one's $8 billion, one's $10 billion, not remember dollars. Mm. And the amount of money that they're pumping into this is astronomic. On the other hand, you've got places like Malta, Dubai, mm -hmm. Singapore, Estonia, who are right at the leading edge of what's happening in the regulatory space. And Malta is become, becoming known as Blockchain Island right mm. now. I think it's a really smart move, right? No, it, it's brilliant from their point of view. Because, Why doesn't Australia do this? Well, you see, my argument has been the following. We... Are not we've got too much infrastructure to be right at the leading edge. We mm. will never be the Malta, which has got four hundred thousand people, mm. or Estonia has got about two island. million. Yeah, and Estonia's got two million people. And that Stain, sort of Estonia's thing. also got the startup visa. Yeah, absolutely, mm. absolutely. Mm. But it's the idea we should be the fast follower, mm. right? Where 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 we actually look at what's actually happening in Malta, who have in they have issued three statutes defining distributed ledger technology, all right, and regulating the structure. So there's a load of what is termed as regulatory arbitrage going on where people are saying, okay, where do we register? And it, there's a big innovation narrative because if people actually invest in Malta and take their, their projects to Malta because of the, regula the regulation makes sense, then it means that there's a lot of money going outside of, of Australia or South Africa or the US, wherever it might be. And so there is this narrative, if we're not a fast follower, we're going to lose out big time. And if you've got China that's investing God knows how much in the blockchain tech itself, which they are doing in a very, very serious way, but at the regulatory, regulatory point of view, you've got the smaller players. If Australia was a fast follower and just mm. went behind those and said, okay, here are the mistakes, here are the learnings, this is where it's good, this is where it's bad, let's adjust this, let's improvise. But do we have, I mean, again, back to my question, are, are there people in the US government and the Australian government that understand it? I mean, I, I interviewed Anil Dash um, in New York, and he's a, he was a part of uh, Obama's tech advisory. And um, he said on the podcast, he said, you, you know, the, there is such limited understanding of tech in the government. It's, I think it's one of those things. If you think about tech, people who are at the senior end of, of government will have a lot of gray hairs, mm. right? And the reality is, when you think back to when the first PC came out, they will probably have been in the, maybe their late 20s, early 30s, before they had exposure to computers. Whereas digital natives and, and you know, I mean, the I think the CFO or the, the finance minister in Malta is 30, mm. all right? 
And you know, I was talking. I was interviewing somebody um, that is originally from Lithuania. Same thing. Mm. Their chief finance minister is about thirty-one years old, and, and so, right behind us, Tim. <laughs> yeah, no, but but it's but this is the thing. All right, if people don't understand the technology, they don't understand the risks, which means they won't get involved. Right, and I mean, you know, the Australian government going back it was a, a, about two or three months ago issued from the Digital Transformation Agency issued a report on the blockchain saying that you know it's it's too it's in its hype cycle. Approach it with caution is probably the best way of saying it. Now that gives everybody a leave pass to say, yeah, well, we don't need to worry about that. But the reality of what's going on at the ground level is there is so much opportunity that's coming out of this. We should certainly in Australia, be a fast follower. Look, I think, I think the good aspect, I mean, the positive aspect is that the startup scene in Sydney is, is going nuts. And I think if anything, it's always nice if there's the right regulatory and we need the right regulatory framework and the right sort of pillars put in place by government. But if anything, there's a lot of goodwill and a lot of enthusiasm from the private sector, right? There is, there is. I mean, I mean, the startup scene. I mean, with the startup hub that's being created in the centre of Sydney by New South Wales government, they're embracing innovation, which is very, very strong. Mm. But it needs somebody at the top mm. of government to actually to say, "We really need this happening, and we need to have it happening now." They're because too busy politicking. To, I know, I know. They're too busy, just sort of. It's like the schoolyard. I mean, I don't know. And again, I'm hoping that you know, the blockchain can somehow just, just declutter politics because politics around the world is just such a mess oh it's oh i mean yeah we have a, a long discussion about yeah. uh, about about the political situation globally but yeah I, I mean i think um there's there's just so much activity happening in this space and this regulatory structure that's coming through in the next you know over the it's a sort of quarter two next year that's going to transform everything because it enables the institutional funds to get involved in this space not only in terms of engaging with the cryptocurrency but creating products for the you know for the cryptocurrency space so from their point of view the narrative changes and institutional funds when you consider they invest in things like the gold market which is 7 trillion dollars you've got uh, the top 20 equity markets around the world are about 84 trillion dollars you've got cash in banks globally is about 95 trillion dollars you've got property a real estate was about 217 trillion and then you've got the global bonds markets bond markets which are about 100 trillion all up that's 517 trillion dollars are the markets they can actually invest in because they're highly regulated mm. if you've got one percent mm. of a portfolio going into sort of security tokens or this type of structure that's five point. That's about five trillion dollars. The, the cryptocurrency markets are about one hundred and eight million uh, billion dollars right now. This will just eclipse it. And we never give financial advice because we're not. No, we're absolutely. not. We're not licensed to. And I'm definitely not licensed to. But having a theoretical discussion between you and I, I mean, if if you've got a five to ten year time frame, I mean, I would still think. Me personally, if I had a bit of spare cash, I'd be comfortable putting a bit into Bitcoin, right? Five to ten year yeah, time I mean, frame. I mean, again, this is absolutely not financial advice. I think, I think we will see a lot of positive news come into the cryptocurrency space generally because of security tokens, right? Mm. And I think, like, like, like anything, you know, a high tide floats all boats, yep. right? But I think 
in the midterm, and again, this is not in financial advice, but in the midterm, in the midterm, we're going to see, I think, a bit of a pivoting away from Bitcoin because security tokens are actually valued by an asset that is underpinning, that is actually underpinning it, whether that's a piece of art or real estate, those types of things, or venture capital funds. And I think the relevancy of Bitcoin may start to decrease in the medium term. And I think if we look at the real long term, the sovereign currencies, Mm -hmm. um, which are being touted and being developed, um, if you have, for example, I mean, Russia's looking at the digital ruble, China are are reputedly looking at the digital one. You've got, you know, you've got smaller nations like Dubai doing it, Singapore doing it. Uh, There's even in Barbados, they are, They've already created the Barbados digital dollar. I wish we'd get rid of cash, Tim. Oh, I, I, I mean, I think cash will find it will, will naturally find its its natural mm. exit. But once we have you know, sovereign currencies in play, mm. where you can actually program those currencies, and you can, for example, you can actually see where money is being spent. You won't necessarily know that you, you know, who you know, who you've bought stuff from or anything like that, but you'd be able to see that, say, people are buying. Furniture, which is always a sign that the the economy is doing well, for example, uh, you can actually fine tune the economy in real time. So, if a country starts to adopt digital currencies, why would you have something like Bitcoin, which is decentralized? Who you know, nobody knows who you know, well, nobody owns it, so it is completely outside wouldn't, the remit. Wouldn't some people say the whole you know the value prop of Bitcoin is that it's it's independence of any government control, well, right? I think for certain countries. I mean, on, on the podcast, literally week before last, I interviewed somebody from Venezuela, uh-huh. all right, and how Bitcoin was actually being used in Venezuela. Now, Venezuela is a bit of a a bit of a crazy case yeah. in some ways. I mean, they have 500,000% inflation, okay? So to put that into perspective, if you buy a cup of coffee today, the same time, yeah, at three dollars fifty in a week's time, it'll cost you thirty five dollars. Absolutely insane. Okay. I mean, how how someone can screw up a country that badly is like it's unbelievable. But the the reality is that people are actually buying Bitcoin because it's actually it stores it's, the value. It stores the value, but nobody actually owns it. Mm. So people can't for, touch it, right? Right, they well, can't touch it. They can't touch it. I mean, it's. I mean, just I th- don't I lose think, your private keys. Yeah, abs- absolutely. But I think. Yeah, you know, it's those sort of cases that make that make a really good use case for Bitcoin. Yeah. Right? I think in the traditional level, in the traditional scenario where you've got this anti terrorist narrative going on globally, the pseudo anonymous nature of Bitcoin, where it's just here's an address, here's another address. We don't actually know who owns them. And that's a that, yeah. You, know, you can just hear the conversations coming through from government. But 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 it is true. I mean, these days when you read in the paper that people have uh, there's been a drug bust of, of dealers, they usually say that they at least fifty percent of the time they say they've also you know confiscated cryptocurrency as well. So they are. I mean, but then again, they confiscate cash. So it's but yeah. but it, but it's the same sort of dynamic as cash, you know. So it's uh, it's anonymous and you can mm. easily transport it. So I think I think once cryptocurrency comes into the sovereign domain, I think. Personally, I think we'll see governments globally turning around and saying, right, you cannot actually exchange any form of Bitcoin for local currency. Mm. 
And then if you do that, if it's not available to exchange so you can buy a cup of coffee or a, or a beer or whatever, its value will just cease and, to And be. maybe Bitcoin will be these niche cases like Zimbabwe and Venezuela. And yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Where, where there's, as they say, sovereign risk. It, significant sovereign risk. I mean, it's uh, yeah. It'll just, I mean, who knows what's actually going to happen? But you know, it, the future is infinitely, infinitely difficult to predict, right? Precisely. You can only sort of you can just judge where uh, the trends are going. And that's why I laugh at these guys in crypto, with it's you know the pro crypto guys and the guys saying it's nonsense. And I'm like, the truth is neither neither group knows. You know, they both get into these religious debates. You know, crypto's you know going to change everything, rule everything. No, it's nonsense. And it's like you you both just actually really both wrong. No one knows. It's just you're both wrong. You're both right. Yeah. Well, in, there in you certain, go. Exactly. In ways, you know. I mean, I mean, nobody really knows which way it's going to go. But I think if the cryptocurrencies and the 3,000 that are out there right now do not adopt or adapt to actually welcoming regulation, which is a bit against the original thesis of Bitcoin, I think they'll become irrelevant. Mm. Interesting. Tim, who's the ex executive producer of his own podcast about blockchain and more, Down the Rabbit Hole, he's also got a book down the rabbit hole, which if you're looking for an intro to blockchain and Bitcoin, is fantastic. I got Jimmy, who's who's a wonderful, I've spoken about him many times on the podcast. He's, he's going to be 80 soon. He grew up in a different era, but he works with Managed Flitter. And I expose him to all these interesting ideas. And he read the book and he, he that's where he learned everything about the, the blockchain and Bitcoin. I think he even dragged him in into one of the podcasts yeah, for a book we review. Did, yes. yeah. um, right. So besides your book and your podcast, any other resources for someone who's interested in, you know, everything from tokenizations and, and, and the crypto developments? I think the key thing is go onto YouTube. There are a lot of commentators who are putting out regular content relating to you know, the blockchain and cryptocurrencies. I mean, the good thing is that because we've had a, a real severe um, sort of market conditions, a lot of the the real sort of shillers and the and the real sort of pumpers have gone because they can't make enough money. The anymore. cowboys. The cowboys have gone. Yeah. So you generally tend to have better quality content. And just just learn as much as as much as anybody can. Just just learn. Just just go onto YouTube. You know, look at you know, listen to podcasts. Just you know, read read the books. Just just understand. Have a look at some of the you know, the sort of the main sources of news. Things, you know, CoinDesk is probably one of the best websites to look at. It gives a lot of up-to-date news about the uh, the blockchain and Bitcoin space. I've got a Twitter list, um, a public Twitter list called Blockchain. So if you follow me on Twitter, I've followed quite a few accounts. I'm trying to remember, I'll quickly try and see if I can, but it's quite a lot of accounts of uh, individuals and businesses and news new sort of sources so you can follow that twitter list and i try to keep it up to date as well uh, let me see how many how many people i've got on my uh twitter doesn't sort your twitter lists in alphabetical order fancy that um <laughs> i don't know what order i don't know what order it's um actually good old twitter we love it i got 155 accounts that i'm following so i've already curated a nice list of twitter account and i've got 13 people that have subscribed to it so um yeah i, I think the key thing is this technology is not going away and it it's, definitely isn't and it's isn't. but it's it's is it going to be applicable to every single use case no it's not but i think it's it's important for anybody in the tech scene to at least understand what's going on and just where this technology can help 
companies solve problems that they've actually got. That's the key thing, to try and get that return on investment for, for problems they're actually facing. And we can um, soon own a slice of the Mona Lisa. Well, that's right. Yeah, you could. Have you seen the Mona Lisa in person? I have. I've been to the Louvre a few yeah, times. Yeah. Oh, so it was just when I was in London, so it was only. Yeah, so it's, it's worth nearly one billion dollars. Huh? It's insane, really, isn't it? Wow. Good old Leonardo. Wow, mm. I sure hope they got some fantastic um, sort of fire, fire extinguisher systems, and you know, I mean, wow, you wouldn't want to lose that painting, right? But it's but it's one of those things. Uh, there would be very very few people that would probably want to steal it or very few people what could you do with it you couldn't show it you, to you couldn't you couldn't sell it you know, it would you know that's, that's the reality you couldn't sell it you have to have as, as a private collection to say i've got the mona lisa it, right it would, right it would have zero dollar value to you yeah whereas in, in the louvre i mean it, it's it's the the heart and soul of, of the louvre isn't it? i mean everybody mm. knows that the louvre in paris has got the the mona lisa so yeah. the brand value of the Louvre is is based around Mona Lisa. Now imagine being able to tap into some of that brand value or some of the revenues coming through from the Mona Lisa in terms of licensing, in terms of exhibition revenues and that type of thing. I'm, I'm excited by what it can bring to democracy and capitalism. It's, it's you know, both democracy and capitalism are very, very due for a reset. And I think, I, I, I think populations and, and um, you know, in countries are just – you can sense that they they want real change and revolutionary change in the right way. You can sense it through the politics. Something, it's time to reset and move to a 2.0. Something's, you know, not quite working at the moment and it's being really reflected in the politics. Yeah. And oh, it's, it's, it's all going to extremes, isn't it? I mean, politics is just so far, it's gone from sort of central to to far right so quickly it's just well, let's yeah and the, the whole tribalism sort of you yeah. know aspect and let, let's hope it's all chaos doesn't break loose before we can solve some of well, these problems I, I think it's um i was looking at a video on on youtube the other day and when you look at what was happening in the 30s with depression you know mm -hmm. the depression coming through and then nationalism taking yeah, hold yeah. The, nat well, that's the what natural post-cursor to that is is a war and hopefully that's not going to be the i case. mean ray dalio talks about this I mean, his book's really fantastic. Oh, I'm going to have to read I, it. Yeah, yeah, I'm listening I've, I've to. Seen the, him, I've seen him speak a, a few times. Yeah, I'm. I'm uh, listening to the audio version. Right. And um, he's a brilliant, brilliant man. And and he says something which is really wonderful. He said he learned so much from books where people share their principles of success. That mm. he's you know wanted to write a book where he shares his principle of success and his wish and his challenge to other CEOs and other success, successful people is write a book where you share your principles of success yeah. imagine everyone shares their principles of success so he's he's a really great man and he talks a lot about the depression linked yeah. in with um, all those different aspects and um, you know all the politics and the nationalism and it sort of makes sense you know so Anyway, Tim, thank you so much for, no, for no, the no. chat. My, my uh, pleasure. I mean, it's um, you know, we could talk for hours, but uh, people you know, can people can follow you on Twitter and they can find you on LinkedIn and it's Tim Lee L E A. We'll put you on the show notes. I think this is the fourth time or third time on the podcast. Might be fourth. Is it four? I can't. Remember. It might be the fourth time. Yeah, I think I think but, it's the fourth. And um, yeah, no doubt. Let's. Uh, Let's, let's do a check-in in six months or so, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And um, so, Tim, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks to your audience for uh, putting up with me. <laughs>